بزنیم God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered, suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, though uh, through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who, are all, who all their lives have held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to bring God's word. Father, we, um, we thank you for this deep and, and complex passage. And, um, and we really pray for Clive this evening as he comes to explore it and open it up for us. That you will um, bless us in our hearing uh, this evening. That you'll bless our hearts Um, inspire us anew, show us something in this text that we haven't seen or didn't know about you, Jesus. And bless Clive as he brings the message that you've put on his heart. In your name, for your glory. Amen.
And we're looking at the, the question about who Jesus is. And last week, Ross reminded us that he is Son of God and God the Son. Son of God and God the Son. And this week I'm talking about Jesus as Savior. And then the weeks that follow, we'll look at Jesus the prophet and Jesus as priest and king and Lord and miracle worker and leader. All of these ways are described in this wonderful letter to the Hebrews about who Jesus is. The background and the context was dealt with really well by Ross last week, and if you weren't here, check it out online. But one of the things I want to remind us about, that the very name gives us the assistance, if you like, is that this letter, whoever wrote it, and Ross had several very interesting thoughts, and somebody shared with me a thought this week that it was a woman. I'm not going to tell you which woman they thought it might be, but you can check that out. Go and do a a Google search or something on the author to the Hebrews. But what is certain, as Ross showed, is that whoever this is, they had a deep and profound knowledge as a Jew of the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures as we have them, the Torah and the Law and the Prophets. And these recipients of this letter were Jews who were just about to give up on Jesus. Because it was too tough. Anyone find it tough being a Christian? It is, isn't it? Let me give you some bad, sad news. It's going to get worse. All right? I don't want to be a prophet of doom. That's not me. But it's going to get worse. And that's what Jesus warned us about. And these Jews who had put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah, these Jews very, very clearly were thinking about giving up on Jesus. Let me just turn my microphone on because I've had that uh, word. I wondered why my voice had got louder and louder. Most churches I go to, they they turn the volume down on me for obvious reasons. But these, these Hebrews, these Jews, were turning back, and you'll see that throughout this, uh, this epistle. So when last week Ross told us that the author starts out by making it clear that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, Ross unpacked that by showing that Jesus is God with us, God up close, or, or, as, or as the Lord revealed to Ross in a phrase, God is here. God is here. Emmanuel, as they knew from their Old Testament scriptures, the God who is with us. But they were just finding it so hard that they needed encouragement to keep going, to press on, to not give up trusting in Jesus. And there are three aspects in this chapter that that I want to look at as we look at Jesus, the Savior. First of all, the great salvation, or this great salvation as it's described here. And secondly, the great Savior himself, Jesus. And thirdly, the greatest sacrifice that this great Savior Jesus made in order to achieve this great salvation. So firstly, let's look at this great salvation. And I don't want you to think about the image behind me as Jesus with his nail-pierced hands embraces a man who is experiencing the love of God the Father through God the Son. I I love that image. I love the image. And I think you could explain what we've just enjoyed what we've taken part in as part of the great embrace of God. The great embrace of the love of God, that great, great Father, that good, good Father, that's who He is. 
and who we are are those who are loved by him. So the great embrace of God is what this great salvation is all about. And, and I'm writing and adding things, even as John's leading us in worship and Ross is leading us in communion. Ross took us to that wonderful psalm, which I've been reading over and over again recently, and which I brought into my morning sermon just a week ago. This Psalm 51 is a psalm of David, who is having his sin exposed by Nathan the prophet. And in his brokenness, as he looks to the God who's brought him salvation, I'm going to reread the words that Ross shared. Verse 8 of Psalm 51, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, David says it's the joy of your salvation, not my salvation. This great salvation, first and foremost, is God's salvation. It's God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. David didn't know that. In another psalm, another beautiful worship song he wrote, Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He speaks about the Messiah, the Saviour, being pierced. He's in prophetic mode as he leads in worship. But he didn't understand this table because that's through the New Testament, the New Covenant, the revelation of Jesus. But this is the table of God's salvation. Your salvation, Father. But it's a table of my salvation and your salvation too. And David didn't have that revelation, but he knew the only salvation was in God. It was his great salvation that he was looking for in his brokenness because he'd committed adultery and then he'd committed murder for having Bathsheba's husband Uriah left on his own at the front line of the battle. So this author to the Hebrews is trying to say, don't give up, don't give up. Keep following Jesus. Speaks about this great salvation and speaks about the need to pay greater attention. Let me just read the first few verses again. The author says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's saying, or she's saying, give more attention to this. Pay more attention to this. Don't forget what you've heard. So pay more attention to what, or better said, pay more attention to who? To Jesus. Because what they'd heard is the story of Jesus. And the author goes on to speak about the necessity for a great salvation. In that first part of verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Escape what? Well, at, at, at best, a death that ends there. But for, me, for many theologians, a, a death that ends in eternal separation from God, which is what hell is at best. And most churches never even mention the word. And when people preach on it, they should do so through tears. Because God hates the thought of hell, because God made hell, according to Jesus, for the devil and all his angels. Not for people whom God loves. And yet at best, we'll not escape an eternal lostness and darkness at best if we ignore this salvation. 
And there was this necessity for this great salvation because of what the Bible calls sin. And let me explain the gospel. Beth Diamond has explained the gospel with a, a wonderful balloon recently to children and families. I want to use a simple little coin, a 20 pence piece, which one of the uh, greenhouse community picked up off the floor. And because it was in the precincts of the church, like a good young man, he said, that's got to go in the offering, Clive. Will you make sure it gets there? So I said I'd hold myself accountable. If you see me put this in my pocket afterwards, tell me afterwards it's supposed to go in the bag. But here's a way to explain the gospel. On one side of this 20 pence piece is our queen, our wonderful queen, a Christian woman, a humble woman, a great monarch, a great leader, wearing a crown as a sign of her authority. Now she knows that she's a queen only by the grace of God, and she's a defender of faith. And the God that she knows about and she understands is a God doesn't just wear a crown that is placed upon her head in the way that a monarch has a crown placed upon her head at a coronation, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who institute kings and removes kings. And he's almighty and he's all-powerful and he's holy. And he's so holy he can't even look upon sin. But if you take the other side, the tales then maybe that represents the love of God. And the thing about this coin, if it represents God and his salvation, there needs to be a way by which God reconciles the fact that he is holy and otherworldly and creator and almighty and cannot even look at sin with the fact that he loves to look upon his children, men and women, even those who are covered in sin. And he loves them and he longs for them because he's a good father. So how he resolves... This conundrum is through the great salvation that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided before the beginning of time was going to be the only way to solve it. And this great salvation was that God himself in Jesus Christ would step into planet Earth, seeing his prophets persecuted, seeing his prophets killed, and knowing that he himself would be persecuted, rejected, and brutally murdered, God in Jesus steps into planet earth, and Christ dies on a cross. Why? Because when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. That was a supreme act of forgiveness. The only reason, the only way that I will ever get to have a relationship with God in this life and go to be with him for eternity after this life, as my brother and friend Andrew Gardner has already entered into, and we will celebrate his life. And he's going to be with the Father tomorrow. The only way that he could get there, the only way that I could get there, the only way that we could be loved and know God's love and love him back in this life and be with him for eternity is because God paid the price. God died the death this great salvation. We owe everything to our Father and the Son and the Spirit who, if you're a Christian, lives within you. And the knowledge of this great salvation is confirmed. This author to the Hebrews wants to remind these people in verses 3 and 4. Let, let, let me read it for us. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, this great salvation which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you see, these 
these Hebrews, these Jews who are turning away because it's too tough, the author is, is saying to them, don't forget, pay attention. Remember this great salvation that you've heard about is a necessity. And remember that that knowledge of this great salvation came with a confirmation. The witnesses of the apostles and the prophets, the early church leaders, and the first generation of Christians, this may be second generation now, Anyone here who, has, who was raised in a Christian home but rejected it for a while until you came to receive the faith yourself? Anyone? Yeah, look. You see, God doesn't have grandkids, in a sense. God loves little babies. But God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. You can't get into a relationship with God the Father. You can be drawn close by mum and dad or carers or family or parents or friends, but actually you have to make that choice yourself. As your heavenly Father reaches out to you, it has to become personal, just as it did for many of you. So there are those witnesses of the first generation and the apostles and the witnesses to the resurrection and the early church prophets and those early leaders. But there are also these signs and wonders. Signs that pointed to Jesus. Wonders that made people wonder about Jesus. These miracles and these healings. And then there were these strange things called gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly the most dramatic ones like tongues and healing and prophecy. But when people saw signs like the raising of the dead or evil spirits being cast out of people or the more dramatic and supernatural signs of, of people speaking in a language that was a known language or a dead language, but a language that they never learned, and other people interpreting it, and then some people knowing things they couldn't possibly know, Predictive prophecy and signs like this. All of these were... Now, now, now let me know. Anyone here ever, ever spoken in tongues or heard someone speak in tongues? Heard an interpretation of tongues? Then these signs are still happening in the church. Anyone ever seen a healing? Anyone ever seen a deliverance or been involved in it? Hands going up around the place. Anyone who wants to believe can have evidence right before their eyes... And these Hebrews had had that, but now they're turning their backs because it's tough. By the way, all of those aspects, those confirmations, witnesses, signs and wonders and spiritual gifts, they're all part of the ministry, in a sense, of the Holy Spirit of God. The Father God empowers the people of God who come to faith in Jesus Christ and come to the Father through them. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit so then they can be effective witnesses so that God can work signs and wonders as he did through his son Jesus and will through those who follow Jesus. Just as Jesus said, you'll do even greater things than these. But also these spectacular and at times dramatic gifts. Do you know, when I was a young Christian, this might make you laugh, I was so naive and so passionate and so hungry, I can remember on my knees crying out to God and saying, Oh God, give me all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not a good idea, because I didn't know my Bible well enough, and I didn't know that I was asking, therefore, for the gift of martyrdom and the gift of celibacy, and I was already married. Now, that's a bit weird, isn't it? I wanted everything that God could give me, and everything that God gives me for ministry comes through the Holy Spirit. So, it's a great salvation, this great salvation, but it comes from the great Saviour, the great Saviour who Holman Hunt, the artists in more than one version, painted a, a painting 
called the light of the world, depicting Jesus with a beautiful lamp, depicting Jesus knocking on an old wooden door, a door that didn't have a handle on the outside, as someone noted. And in defense of what they said was a mistake and an error, he said, no, the handle is on the inside. You have to open the door of your heart to Jesus to let him in if you're to know the light of the world personally. This great Savior is the one who's greater than the angels. And if you remember what Ross helped us to understand in such an accessible way last week, Jesus, according to this author, had to be portrayed in this letter to the Hebrews, to these Hebrews, as being greater than their patriarchs and greater than the angels and greater than the law and greater than all the things they were wandering back to. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but all those things pointed to this great Saviour, Jesus, the one who's greater than the angels. Listen to verses 5 to 9. It's not to the angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That's a quotation of Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. This Jew is writing to Jews, and you're going to see in this chapter again, just as Ross explained, Old Testament Scripture after Old Testament Scripture is piled up to show these people not to turn your back on Jesus. He is the Messiah. Look at verses 13 to 14. You'll see what I mean. Verses uh, 4 and 5 and 13 to 14 of chapter 1. First of all, chapter 1, 4 to 5. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son. Today I've become your father. And drop down to verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, there's this clear uh, desire in the author here to say, look, angels may be important in Revelation and in the Old Testament Scriptures, but Jesus is way more important than the angels. Anyone been to a, a New Age fair or anyone been to a good bookshop and looked at the spirituality section? Not a Christian bookshop, but just any good bookshop. Anyone done that and looked at the spirituality section? Have you seen at New Age fairs and in any good bookshop how many books there are on angels? Yeah? Angels. Because angels, yeah, fascinate. Fascinate people. There are even books at New Age fairs and even in normal bookshops in the city of Plymouth where you can find out how to channel an angel. Let me give you a bit of advice. Don't even think about it. If you're praying and an angel turns up, angelos in the Greek, a messenger of God, then be blessed. You'll probably be on your face as I was on the only occasion where I felt there was an angel in the room. I dare not even look round because they'd been in the presence of God, and I was shaking and trembling and crying with reverent fear. But I've cast angels out of people who've channeled what they thought was an angel, and the only kind of angel that you're going to channel is a fallen angel, an evil angel, a non-elect angel. There's another name in Scripture, evil spirits, unclean spirits, demons. 
So there are holy angels, but even these, the author says, don't have anything to do with them. Because what he wants to say is the greatest of the brothers and sisters in our church community within the Jewish family of those who have accepted Yeshua as Messiah, Jesus is the greatest one. And we're allowed to call him our brother. And we're all brothers and sisters because there's this sense of being in family. I, I, I can't remember exactly when Ross said it, but I think he said something that I say from time to time. He said, we've got to put up with each other for eternity, didn't you? You got it from me. Poor man. I hope you haven't got any more of my bad baggage. But, but the thing is, that's true. We're family. If you're a Christian, we're brothers and sisters. Listen to verses 10 to the first part of verse 17. Verse 10 to the first part of verse 17. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's the sons of our Father in heaven, brothers and sisters of Jesus, are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. And you could easily add sisters. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. There you go. First time I encountered an evil spirit, I was shaking with fear. Over and over again, I kept praying the name Jesus. Some of you heard the story. When I teach in Bible college on this, they say, well, that was the best thing you could pray for that woman who was demonized. And I always say, I wasn't praying for her, I was praying for me. But I know in the name of Jesus who holds the power of death, who destroyed the power of the devil, that it goes on to say that he came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I, 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 I'm not surprised as a pastor when I still encounter some people who are frightened of death. Because until the age of 32, when I was an atheist up until that age, I had not quite a morbid fear of death, but a fear of death. Part of me coming to faith was within three weeks, a 15-year-old boy died in my arms, despite me doing resus, uh, chest massage, all, everything I knew from first aid. And then within, within that three-week period, a man at just retirement, he also died. And when the guys at the rugby club would come up with interesting conversations about death, saying, oh, I think drowning in sand would be the worst way, where did they get that from? Or being burnt alive and, you know, having these conversations. And to me, it was just the sense of finality and what happens after. So I had a fear of death. That went when I became a Christian. Jesus wants to destroy the fear of death. And he wants to draw us into a family. He is the only one who is truly the Son of God. But in a sense, we become sons and daughters of the living God because we're brothers and sisters of Jesus and children of our Father in heaven. He's the greatest of the brothers. 
Do you know, talking about angels, there was an angel that brought revelations to the founder of Mormonism. It was the angel Moroni. Have you heard about the angel Moroni? Who brought the whole extra testament, despite the fact that these testaments say that nobody should add to this book. The angel Moroni, and I don't doubt it was an angel who brought revelations to the founder of Mormonism, the angel Moroni brought these extra revelations. Do you know one of the things that, that Mormons believe? That Jesus was a son of God only in the way that you can become a son of, son of God if you too become a Latter-day Saint. So I want to tell you another name for the angel Moroni. We should treat Mormons with respect and dignity and share our faith with love and gentleness. And don't ever tell them this, but I have another name for the angel Moroni. It's called the angel Baloney. Okay? Because no angel of God would add revelation to God's revelation. So we move on to the fact that Jesus is the greatest high priest this great Savior is not only the one who is greater than the angels and the one who is the greatest of the brothers and sisters, is the one who is the greatest high priest. In his humanity, as we've heard, he is like this great high priest. Listen to the second part of verse 17. I'll read the whole verse. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful, here it is, high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus is this great high priest. Now, the difference is, when, when we come to this table, as Ross led us tonight, what we're not doing is sacrificing Jesus all over again. And the architecture of this church, with a simple table, and no series of altars that leads to a high altar that mimics the series of holy and holier and holier places in the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have that architecture. There are some churches, and if you think about it, it reflects it. Only the vicar can go, or only the priest can go to the high altar. And nobody else can go there. And it reflects what happens in the temple. Because on the Day of Atonement, or what Jews now call Yom Kippur, only the high priest on one day a year, after the shedding of much blood, could go into the most holy of places, through the holy place, from the temple uh, courts and the, and the court of the priests. Only that high priest. And what he would do is sprinkle the blood of a lamb. There's no continuing sacrifice here, because Jesus was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of the world. This is just a remembrance and symbols of his body being given and broken and his blood being shed. But the difference with this high priest, Jesus, is he didn't sacrifice a lamb, he was the lamb. He didn't shed the blood of animals, he shed his own blood. He didn't plunge a knife into an animal to end its life and sprinkle its blood on an altar no, he had nails thrust into him and a spear thrust into his side and a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. It was his blood that brings and brought and secured our salvation, this great high priest. So let me move to the third and final aspect of the fact that the author to the Hebrews says that Jesus is a saviour. He made the greatest sacrifice. And the God who through the Father reaches out to embrace us through his Son. 
is the God who's fully and completely known in the Son who holds out his hand to you tonight and holds out his hand to me tonight and holds out his hand to anyone who's willing to put their hand into the hand of God. Listen again to verses 17 to 18 of chapter 2. For this reason he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, this great sacrifice, his sacrifice, Jesus is described here in the last part of verse 17 as atonement. He made atonement. Let, let me make that word as easy as I can. He made an at-one-ment. He made me, through me accepting the atonement, at one with my Father. He's made you, if you're a Christian, at one with your Father. The at-one-ment, the atonement, makes us one with our Father in heaven through the Son, and we receive the Spirit. Wow. His great sacrifice had great value because... It secures our eternal destiny in more blessedness than we can ever realize. It, it was great in cost because it cost him everything. It was great in compassion because he even prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. For the people who'd rejected him and made sure he got there and the people who nailed him there. And Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest sacrifice. And be very suspicious of people who tell you, Either that there's only one view of the atonement or they want to exclude certain historic biblical views of the atonement. You see, substitution runs right throughout the whole of Scripture from the high priest who would lay the sins of Israel onto a lamb that was then sacrificed. It became the substitute for the people of Israel whose sins made them worthy of death. And then there's the whole thing that there's a penalty to pay. So the lamb, in a sense, paid the price by being a substitute. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price. Not to the devil, no, not to his father either. Just so that that coin can be reconciled, the love of God and the holiness of God leads to the sacrifice of God who becomes the substitute. It's like a judge that sees his friend in, in the dock and knows his friend is guilty and knows that because he's his friend and people might say things, and that his friend is guilty, he hands over the maximum fine for his friend, and then later on he steps out of the, uh, out of the judge's seat and he goes to his chambers and he disrobes and takes his, his, his uh, wig off and he takes his gown off and he goes to find his friend at the, at the desk trying to explain there's no way he can pay this fine. And the judge signs the check and pays the fine himself. That's what it's like. God himself pays the price. And he pays it through great suffering, agony, agonizing suffering. The cross, if you've never had it explained to you, led to such a great suffering for Jesus, the agony of Jesus, because the way that the Romans have devised to torture and murder people by piercing their hands and their feet was that they would suffocate slowly and bleed out slowly, trying to push themselves up on their nail-pierced feet so that they could catch a breath and then hanging again. 
And if they took too long to die, when they're at their weakest eventually, they'd smash their legs so that they couldn't breathe any longer and they'd suffocate. Jesus had been beaten within an inch of his life, punched, spat upon, rejected, mocked, ridiculed. Had a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Didn't even need his legs breaking because those Romans, those experienced crucifiers, knew that he was dead. They saw him breathe his last. And Jesus hung there for hours in the darkness because God turned the lights out. He hung there in the darkness for hours, but he did it out of an intense love for you. There are other versions of the atonement. There's Christus Victor. Jesus Christ is the victor who has the victory over all the things that hold you. Whatever you're facing in your life, Jesus can and will give you victory. He died that you might have victory, that you might be more than the conqueror. And Jesus, in one sense, and this almost seems to trivialize the cross for me, but another way of looking at the atonement is example. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. My brother Ross led us to a, a movie, and I, I think my sister, Katie Van Santen, has posted on the Fuse website something about a pacifist that Mel Gibson describes in his movie when this man of peace will not pick up a rifle, but he saves life after life after life in one of the greatest battles of the Pacific of the Second World War. Greater love has no one than this, than they're willing to lay down their lives for their friends. And that soldier followed the example of Jesus. So I want to come to my final point, and, and, and in a sense it all moves towards this. This great salvation, this great saviour, and this great and your agonizing sacrifice informs God, who is full of compassion and great sympathy. He's able to empathize. Listen to verse 18 again, and then we'll look at chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And Ross, we didn't plan this, but the Spirit did. Thanks for reading them twice. Verse 18. Let's read it. Because he, because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted tempted. You see, Jesus has great sympathy. He's able to not only sympathize, but empathize. He's able to help us because he knows what it's like. And those verses that Ross read, I'm going to read again. Hebrews, the same epistle, chapter 4, verses 14, down to the end of the chapter. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly. He's urging these people who are backsliding and wandering away from trusting in Jesus alone. He says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted and tested, you can add, in every way, just as we are. And yet he wasn't sinful. He never sinned. He never gave in. He was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what Ross said. Come, come to this table tonight with confidence. 
I think he actually said, barge the door down at one stage. See, I do listen to you. What Ross has captured is what this author is, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, trying to say to people who are giving up on Jesus, look, there's no one else who's going to love you that way. There's no one else who's going to empathize that way. There's no one else who's going to sympathize that way. There's no one who gets it. There's no one who knows what it's like. There's no one who's been tempted and tested and tried and beaten and bloodied and murdered and come through it all and defeated death and paid the price for your sin and my sin and loves you that much. There's no one else to go to. So when Jesus was trying to explain to the Jews that unless they ate his flesh and drank his blood, they could have no part in him, and, and, and it was provocative. They were appalled. And some of his disciples who had been following, they just left in drove upon drove upon drove. And Jesus in his humanity turns to his closest friends and disciples, and I can imagine him saying it a bit like this, are you going to leave too? And Peter says this, you have the words of eternal life. Who are we going to go to? Who else is there? What's the point? You're the one. You're the man. You're the son of God. You're God the son. By the way, he didn't say all this, I'm paraphrasing. But it was in his heart. So stand with me for a moment, will you? Just in a prayerful moment, I'd encourage us to respond to his love, to respond to his love and his sympathy and his empathy. So let me ask you the question. You don't need to give me an answer. What are you facing at the moment? What's the hardest part of your life at the moment? Because I've got some great news for you. God knows, and despite maybe the doubts at times, God cares, and God hears, and God not only sympathizes, God empathizes, because God in Christ went to that cross. And you and I, we have a high priest who knows how tough it is. And he's there for you right now. Heavenly Father, reach down and touch your children. For you are indeed a good, good father. And as we've been reminded in worship, there's not a man or a woman here that you don't love. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Saviour. Thank you that you gave your best, and in that profound mystery, you came in Christ. Demonstrated your love through his life, through his miracles, through his teaching, through his compassion, and supremely through his death and his resurrection. And Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you now, and we say we need that sympathy, we need that empathy, we need that touch, we need your power to be at work, Father. So help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I need to go and get...